All right. Well, I guess we can get started then. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I understand your background is uh, molecular biology and you work in biotech and you were, you had some health related issues yourself with uh, autoimmune. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a long story because uh, it started out uh, initially, I actually worked in healthcare, okay. but uh, I was kind of a salesperson for surgical devices. So it was not like uh, working in the actual uh, taking care of people, of uh, patients. So um, gotcha. I've never had a patient, uh, <laughs> to, to be honest. So um, this part is, is only what I, what I learned from my friends, medical doctors and, and others. So, gotcha. yeah, and then um, then I moved to industri industrial biotech. I worked for an enzyme company for something like nine, nine years. And um, I was uh, first, uh, I did some technical sales, selling uh, enzymes to different uh, food industry, uh, ethanol production, uh, including bioethanol. And, um, and then uh, the main part was starch processing, which means, uh, high fructose corn syrup, basically. So I'm an international expert of uh, fructose syrup uh, wow. production. And um, yeah, all this kind. And, and uh, lately, uh, I worked for a local uh, syrup producer as a application, application support specialist, which, which is basically providing technical support for the sales stuff. So visiting uh, food industry customers, and uh, explaining uh, how to use, how to switch uh, products and uh, how to formulate different uh, things. So this kind of, uh, and all the health uh, stuff is completely a hobby gotcha. so far. Well, we like your hobby. I think uh, I've been following your work for probably a year now and you always have very interesting papers that you post on Twitter and some very insightful comments. Uh, I, I started I started as a, yeah, it started as a uh, regular weight loss journey, something like a little bit short of uh, six years ago. Wow. And um, then I very quickly lost uh, something like what it's in pounds, 70 pounds. Wow. In five, five, six months. Impressive. And um, then uh, I was already running some experiments because I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm officially a biologist, so I'm supposed to understand how things work, but actually I didn't, <laughs> which turned out that um, I had uh, three meals a day. I started out a regular uh, kind of Atkins and then uh, moved to low carb, high fat. And I was really amazed by the high fat part. So I started adding in between my three meals, uh, buttered Brazil nuts. Brazil, Brazil nut is something like 90% fat mm -hmm. and uh, butter is 82% fat. And I was really curious if that would stop my uh, weight loss, but it didn't. So wow. uh, I, I was amazed. Uh, it was not really pleasant because uh, I had these heat waves in, in the evenings and going right. to bed. My, my body still tried to burn off uh, the stuff, the ex extra calories. And, uh, and it was not, not very pleasant. I had this... Uh, heavy heartbeats and I was sweating in the bed, but otherwise I was fine and, was, and I was still losing uh, weight, which was quite amazing. And I still don't fully understand how this stuff works. And that's, I don't think, I think that, that I don't think anyone keeps... does. I think we, I certainly appreciate that you can admit that. I think uh, anyone who claims that they know how it all works. Is, yeah, uh, I, I have a long, I have a very long list of uh, reading stuff. I have something like, I'm closing on, uh, 
8K papers in my library. Wow. And um, and uh, yeah, I have uh, something like uh, I usually run into uh, the the max limit. That's how I, that's how I actually found out the max limit uh, of my iPad uh, Safari tabs because uh, suddenly <laughs> there was the this uh, you, you know a little bit uh, blue blue uh, cross uh, was grayed out. Oh, I, no. I was like, what, what, what the hell? And I and I recognized that I reached uh, the maximum tabs. That was 499. So I was wow. not able to add the 500th <laughs> tab. So then I, uh, now I every month uh, I get rid of uh, 100 tabs. And then within a month, I, I just add 100 more. So I have to do this cleaning <laughs> again and again. It's crazy. That's crazy. So uh, I have uh, one feature uh, for Apple to, to add to, to the stack browser that uh, I, somehow I should be able to export at least the the, the title and then and, and the web link uh, for, yeah. for, uh, for the tabs that because be nice. uh, then I can save it uh, in, a, in a much easier way than just saving it adding to the reading list by one by one it's crazy right you, you can do that with uh, 400 uh, tabs <laughs> that's a little crazy so you've evidently done a ton of reading and you share a ton of it on Twitter and that's yeah really, really I, I preferably I call myself a sofa researcher because mm -hmm. that's what I do I, I use my iPad mainly as my primary device because it's great for reading yep. especially these uh, colorful and uh, large screen stuff it's not really good uh, it's not uh, ideal to use a small ebook reader or, or whatever so I've been using an iPad for I don't know more than eight years Nice. And then obviously almost six years for reading uh, papers. And uh, these days, I think I almost exclusively read papers. And no blogs, very rarely some videos and, and these kind of things. Um, I have such a long list of uh, to-dos in terms of papers that I, I, I'm really I feel that it's a waste of time to to go and uh, read uh, blogs and these kind of things and books yeah. and, and whatever. Fair enough. So I, I really apologize if somebody is listening to this and and um, he he finds out that I won't necessarily read his latest book or or blog post or whatever. But um, when you are deeply into the intestines, <laughs> then I think you're, uh, you're doing the important work here. I think somebody yeah has to yeah that, that that it's, it's very so. difficult to go and and uh, do some light reading. Yep. So yeah, I, I do it in my free time mainly, obviously, as yep, a hobby. Same here. Yeah. Some some. I guess we both got the day jobs. Yeah. Some some uh, areas overlap with my day job. For example, the the fructose uh, part. You saw my uh, report. I have mm -hmm. another one more recently completed uh, on the differences uh, in uh, metabolic and uh, health. Uh, differences uh, between uh, sugar, high fructose, corn syrup, and, and honey. <laughs> there are actually no differences, but, oh, <laughs> but uh, that that comes from from the basic chemistry. So, but you have to explain it uh, to people because they don't want to. Uh, people, what I recognize, for example, on Twitter, people love to hear something, which they have some some kind of a bias. Exactly. Or, or they have a belief, and and uh, I recognize very often that uh, I post something, and you can predict it if it if it is going to be uh, popular or not. If it's yep, something it not not overlapping, not. not not overlapping with the major biases or or, or uh, uh, expectations, then uh, and it's very deeply scientific. You get something like uh, five to ten likes. If you if you share something which overlaps with uh, some of the uh, groups low carb or whatever groups uh, basic uh, ideas 
then you get then you get uh, 100 retweets and then uh, uh, i don't know 300 likes and and uh, 30k uh, impressions and uh, yeah now now you can now i'm i'm able to predict more or less uh, with high accuracy if it's if it's going to be a, a popular or a just a nerd post that's that's a little scary i think people need to make sure that they're pursuing their own um biases and you know as Feynman says you're you're yeah, the funny thing, you know the funny thing is that uh, you you just post something which you believe it's is, is very important and it's uh, it's a great addition to our existing knowledge and then uh, uh, I keep adding um, replies like creating a thread and keep adding replies and even with uh, I don't know how many replies it, it, it it's got only 30 likes or, or whatever so yeah. I, I I cannot really um, make make it appear more important than than people believe believe it to be so it's yeah. it's, it's rather difficult but so uh, with all this yeah. reading um what would you say your kind of running hypothesis is right now for the cause of it's, it, the, the funny if, thing if is that it, it constantly changes and uh, this is you you you'd like to hear my wife when i uh, say something that uh, you shouldn't need that or you should change uh, that in, in in your daily habit or whatever ah now it's completely different what you were saying uh, two years ago even comp compared to last year it's, it's crazy i i'm fed up with all this so uh well, i yeah, think that's I'm, great that you're constantly refining your opinion and i hope that you know i can do the same and i i have been now um but i'd be curious to hear just like at the moment what's your point in time snapshot hypothesis of with the latest yeah, I information think, uh, you have? I'm, I'm still hovering between two pathways or or two possible etiologies or uh, two two common metabolic diseases and uh one is what seems to work in in rodents, in in murine and rat and other other models, uh, so that uh, they they start with this so-called high-fat diet, and then uh, their uh, gut becomes leaky. They see all these uh, high amounts of uh, lipopolysaccharides entering their, yeah, usually not the the bloodstream, but this is a different story. We will come back to, I guess. And um, and uh, there was another paper in Nature which describes a very similar pathway, but then it's uh, chronic colonic uh, acetate, which makes uh, to their bloodstream, and and uh, somehow the brain perceives its uh, chronic elevation in in blood acetate as uh, probably a chronic uh, dys dysbiosis uh, in their in their large uh, bowels, and then uh, it's. Uh, creates an inflammatory response, which includes the hyperinsulinemia. And then hyperinsulinemia uh, stimulates all the hyperphagia, which is the, the overeating, and the, the downstream effects, uh, what we recognize as uh, metabolic disease, and including ob obesity. So uh, this is uh, very compelling, but I'm not sure actually that it, it works the same, the very same way in, in, in humans. So there is another uh, possibility I see and uh, there are some studies which point to uh, it's, it, it starts very similarly with um, imbalance in, in the small intestines uh, and if you saw my presentation uh, my talk in, in Prague where I, I described this uh, imbalance uh, in connection with with the hormones the, the hormonal yeah, imbalance secretory hormones the GLP yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and then yeah. then it can be connected also to a changed uh, inflammatory uh, response 
And all this can uh, create a, a kind of a adipose tissue uh, chronic expansion signal. Um, and, uh, and that uh, requires actually uh, uh, stimulation from, from lipopolysaccharides for uh, opening up the gut barrier mm -hmm. so that uh, it, it's, it, it's actually part of the healthy uh, adipose tissue expansion. So in order for, for the tissue to, to be able to add new blood vessels and, and all the matrix, all the, all the cells, what's, what's needed for, for expansion, uh, you need some kind of a local inflammation. And it seems that the body cannot just create the necessary inflammation out of nothing, but uh, it opens up the, the intestinal barrier and uh, the delivered uh, bacterial debris or even cells create the necessary inflammation for, oh, for expansion. So, there so is a, a there possibility is a, this, of like reverse causation yeah, kind of thing. There, there is this uh, Swiss guy uh, sitting at the University of uh, Texas, you know, the Touchstone Diabetes uh, Center is called uh, Scherer. Uh, he's from uh, Switzerland and he's now the, I think he's now the director of, uh, of this, uh, the whole institute, the Diabetes, Diabetes Center in, in Houston. And uh, he, um, I think he got the Banting Medal something like two years ago. Wow. Uh, but uh, never mind. Uh, the, the important thing is that uh, his group was the one showing this, that uh, that um, you needed the information in, in adipose tissue in order to, uh, in order for the, for the healthy expansion. And uh, the, the, the way the body could uh, do that was opening up the barrier. So the question is, uh, you know, the, the typical chicken and egg, uh, which occurs first is the opening up or disruption of the, the barrier, which causes all the downstream effects, or there is a chronic stimulation for expansion, which opens up the barrier to create the necessary inflammation. Mm -hmm. So for, in this regard, I'm, I'm really undecided. At, so at I moment. guess following on from that, is there an experiment you could come up with that would offer insight into which of those is likely to be the case? Is there something? Uh, I think there try? are so many details. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm up to my nose uh, deep into <laughs> this uh, right now, um, trying to find out uh, how it happens in at least uh, mice, and then uh, trying to find similar information in in humans. Uh, it's it's really unfortunate, but at least we have something that uh, that uh, much of the information comes from these uh, rodent models. So right. uh, what is uh, translatable, what is applicable to humans is, is always a big uh, question yeah. mark. I hadn't so thought about the possibility of the reverse causation yet, but it's interesting. Like I, the research that I was looking at was feeding um, high fat meals. I'm sure you've seen this study where they gave high fat meals to diabetics, pre-diabetics and, you know, normal controls. We'll call them normal controls because, you know, we know that the U.S. population is a gosh darn mess when it comes to metabolic health and who knows if these people were really healthy. Uh, uh, um, yeah. So Nick and I want to retry this with uh, having a couple of carnivores as controls because we'll assume that, you know, somebody who's a, you know, lean zero carb eater is going to have reduced. Yeah, but they have ability. a physiological insulin resistance and then it's another kind of a disturbing uh, parameter. What you will find that mm. uh, they have, uh, if, if you feed them, glucose then uh it takes oh, this is, uh, this ages was, to right yeah. yeah yeah 
that makes sense. It takes ages due, due, to the, due to the circulating ketones and, and right. fatty acids, it takes ages for them to clear uh, the, the glucose. Yep. So, so this would be a, a high fat feeding challenge. So we would use uh, heavy cream and that's what they used in this study. And they looked at postprandial. Yeah, cream, cream is already in, uh, in, interest, interesting stuff because uh, cream in, in rodents won't create any problems. So interesting. <laughs> Uh, if you if you feed them high cream a high cream diet uh, we have and it was replicated in, in humans actually I have something like uh, three studies saved and uh, I still remember I saved them with a tagging by uh, WT percent because uh, one of the studies contains in the in the title the weight percent uh, and then this is how I remember these uh, studies I, I have them saved and uh, the the uh, but when you when you feed rodents with a high dairy fat diet, they don't become obese and, and diabetic. So interesting. Well, I assume that's true <laughs> of humans. If you remove all of the other stuff, I guess in this case the the diabetics may have had you know, and the normal weight controls could have eaten some McDonald's and some gluten and some whatever else beforehand. So we have no idea like what the state of their it, gut is to begin I with. I think, but in in, in rodents, you need the, yeah, you, you need the disruption in at the at the intestinal barrier. Right. So that um, and and uh, it seems that uh, uh, dairy fat rather reinforces uh, barrier functions. So it's not a good model for for uh, creating um, um, diabetic animals. Right. So, that makes sense. But in this case, when they did feed the diabetic humans um, with the dairy fat, they saw that in the four hours, as the area under the curve, the diabetics absorbed three hundred thirty-six percent more endotoxin. As compared to yeah, but uh, that, that's I think uh, uh, it, it's a long discussion what we should consider as a um, impaired barrier function, because um, the basic anatomical and physio physiological setup in the small intestines is that uh, uh, long chain fatty acids are not absorbed into the blood; they are absorbed into the lymphatics. Right. Uh, so they go into chylomicrons, and chylomicrons mm -hmm. are uh, uh, secreted into the lacteals, uh, which are the, the primary small vessels of uh, lymphatics. And then uh, the lymphatics is being collected and transferred to, to the uh, mainly to the mesentery, which is a mm -hmm. kind of uh, adipose, uh, uh, some lymph nodes hidden in, in adipose tissue, the, the, one of the main uh, visceral fat uh, depots, and. Um, uh, actually, I think there is a very good reason why it is kind of designed by nature like this. So uh, lipopolysaccharides attached to long-chain fatty acids and uh, this, uh, this stuff shouldn't go to the liver directly, but they are kind of being filtered in, in the mesentery lymph nodes first. And then it's uh, forwarded to, to the, the big uh, lymphatic vessels, which uh, connects to the, to the large vein before it enters the, the heart. So it's, it, it gets, gets uh, uh, kind of a bypass from, from the portal circulation. And then there is a good reason uh, why that works like that. And then, um, so I, I don't really consider it as a in, impaired uh, barrier function. So by definition, I think uh, uh, leaky gut means that when you have these tight junctions between cells, and uh, they are disrupted and uh, stuff enters between the cells mm -hmm. that's when you have leaky gut but when you intentionally uh, transfer uh, luminal content including lipopolysaccharides into the chylomicrons that's not uh, leaky gut 
That's gotcha. that's normal, that normal normal working of uh, of the system. Hmm. So I think there is still a huge confusion. Regarding so I guess what that that gets kind of tricky though, because if you had um, dysbiosis, let's say of some sort, and you had increases in die-off or in gram-negative bacteria, just increasing the total amount of lipopolysaccharides that could enter when you do have high fat feeding, one would assume that that's also bad because you're going to exceed the body's capability of. Yeah, that's, that. that's, 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 I think that's a reasonable hypothesis. Definitely. Um, what, what I don't uh, really know is uh, what, what we do know is that uh, simple sugars uh, have a kind of a double whammy on, uh, on uh, this process. So when you have a regular uh, simple sugar intake, which means uh, simple starches and and uh, and sugars, then uh, uh, these uh, create the dysbiosis itself. So you will uh, actually it's it's uh, astonishing how little information is available uh, on small intestinal small intestinal microbiota. Uh, everybody is doing uh, fecal, but who the right. Who the shit cares about this? this uh, literally, I mean, uh, th there is such a huge difference that the, the very few studies in the, on the small intestinal microbiota sh show that uh, there is a huge difference in composition, and there is a huge difference in function, and there is a huge difference between colonic and small intestinal uh, immune system and immune <laughs> setup. The, the ana anatomy is different already. Right. So, uh, and the and uh, as as you would, as you would expect. Uh, the, the small intestinal microbiota is, mu is much more sensitive to diet because right. uh, the diet is much more varying up, yep, up in the small intestine. It's receiving way different yeah. things, yeah. And, and uh, what, what we do know is that uh, uh, the, the, the bad guys love to gorge on simple sugars. So then you have a kind of a overgrowth of, uh, of these simple sugar digesters and uh, these happen to be uh, high uh, lipopolysaccharide producing gram negatives. Right. So um, you, you have uh, high levels of lipopolysaccharides, and no wonder when you eat a donut and you provide uh, simple uh, sugar and fat, simple sugar and, and the fat and the yep. fat, then then you have a high translocation of uh, lipopolysaccharides. And I guess we because... don't actually know necessarily, or something that I would want to look into is you know if that donut contains, let's say, oxidized fats from being deep fried and reused vegetable oil, what impact does that oxidized fat have on the bacteria? Is it possible that that would cause an increase in bacterial die-off, which would then increase the <sighs> amount of lipopolysaccharides even more? That that's, would be a very interesting thing yeah, to find that's, out. Yeah, uh, that's mainly uh, guesswork, I believe, uh, at this point. I, I haven't found that there are very few studies, and all these uh, small intestinal uh, microbe studies uh, point to, to one uh, direction that uh, uh, fecal uh, studies are not really translatable to, to small intestinal stuff. That would make so, a lot of sense. I guess the tricky so, part is how the heck do you measure the small And then, then there is the, there is the, the yeah, huge anatomical uh, difference between uh, mice and humans, mm -hmm. because uh, the, already the ratio uh, between the, the two, uh, the small intestinal surface, for example, I, I believe right. surface is much more important than, than volume. In this case, because uh, all these researchers try to uh, emphasize their their point, the research what they are doing that uh, yeah, colonic uh, flora is is very important because of all the short chain fatty acids and and things and, and so on. 
but uh, it's not the volume what's really important but the the, the interaction happens uh, on surfaces mm -hmm. and uh, the human small intestinal uh, surface i think it's an order of magnitude higher than the large intestinal surface right so so when you are talking about surface uh, and bacteria are mainly at the surface and uh, yeah in, in in the colon they they fill up a much larger space in the lumen but uh, what what's really interesting is is the surface <laughs> and uh, the surface is much much higher in humans compared i mean the the relative small intestinal surface compared to the colonic right surface is, is much much higher so we, we really should be looking at that and uh, barely anybody does so I mean, my guess is it's just a difficulty to measure, right? Because you can measure the colonic yeah, yeah, yeah. and fecal microbiota by just having, you know, sticking it's, a swab. It's, it's coming. I, I already saw these, uh, what is it called? These, um, like a swallowable you, sensor? Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, no, not only the sensor, but what they send up to the, uh, um, now I don't even remember the name of these uh, uh, planetary stuff, which uh, the, the Japanese uh, probe, a lander. Uh, yeah, probe uh, just uh, sampled. Right. So these these sampling uh, devices, uh, which you can swallow, and then actually which will sample uh, all along the small intestines, and then uh, you shit it out, and then huh. you get uh, all the samples from the small intestines. So if it's, you know it's coming. Of such a device that exists, you have to let me know. Maybe I can get my own I, small. I, I saw the I tested. saw the news on on uh, this one very recently. So, Interesting. We were Nick and I um, were just talking about that yesterday. How the heck do you sample? You know, we were. But we there are a few about the difference, and we were. There curious, are a few like, studies on. <laughs> Yeah, um, there is one I remember on ileostomy patients. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. that they had their large uh, bowel removed, and then right. uh, their their terminal uh, small intestine is just attached to their uh, abdominal wall, and yep. they use these sacs to to remove the the excretes. And uh, yeah, these guys are a little bit unfortunate, but uh, they can serve science a big uh, favor because right. uh, you can you can measure a lot of things. Uh, which which is otherwise which is otherwise uh, almost impossible. So yeah. what, what what you have is uh, either duodenal, so the very first part of the small intestine after the stomach, which will, because then you can use uh, this uh, endoscope and uh, reach uh, the duodenum. So that's uh, that's doable. It's not a pleasant uh, practice. No. <laughs> uh, but the other end, it's almost impossible. You you should go through all the large uh, intestines from from behind and, uh, and uh, that's uh, not really a nice experience no reportedly i've never had that but <laughs> <laughs> me neither but i have had an uh, an endoscope done but i was knocked out for it so that probably really yeah, increases you got to go through also... all kinds of ethical board approval taking somebody's poo is easy but scoping yeah, yeah, yeah. them all that's a, yeah. that's a whole other story and all the way up cost. to the small intestines is it's not really oh, yeah. doable so it's uh, difficult. it's very difficult so we have uh, some rodent uh, stuff and we have very few human, but uh, actually the, the human data corroborates uh, the, the the findings in, in murine models. So that's well, that's nice. That's good. Yeah. So it's the, what we can say at this point that uh, the, the small intestinal flora is, is uh, distinctly different and, uh, and uh, it is much more reactive to dietary changes. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have erroneously focused we have been erroneously focusing on, for example, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, creating this uh, arbitrary definition of uh, the, the breath tests. 
Oh, and that's yeah. only that's only one special that's methane, that's a special yeah. type of uh, dysbiosis right so th there can be many many infinite types of dysbiosis with, which are which don't come with a positive breath test right obviously so you we only measure for uh, for specific uh, um, overgrowth uh, patterns and all the others, uh, which I think th the most important ones remain uh, undiscovered, which is uh, crazy. Because yeah. I think everything starts with uh, at the interaction of uh, food, microbes, and the intestinal immune system in that your small intestines. Yeah. So, so how that, do you think, um, based on, you know, you've obviously done a lot of research on the gut-derived hormones that you were talking about earlier. So how do those relate to the microbiome and permeability and the immune system. Yeah, um, I've been trying to find uh, direct links between the, the imbalance in uh, intestinal hormones and the inflammatory profile, but uh, there is very little out there, to be honest. So uh, I'm always uh, excited to find that, for example, GIP uh, is associated high gip is associated with an increased inflammatory response and then uh, two weeks later they retract the article for some formalities and then you are not able to to use that reference as a no. as a great reference but it, it it was only some formalities leading some self-plagiarism it was not the results which were questions so right uh, that's really a pity and uh, there is the same the opposite one how gip one uh, contributes to lower inflammation, for example, in adipose tissues. Um, and uh, then it was again retracted uh, after a month or, or two. So it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, you, you have wow. you have a really a handful, and then half of them are uh, retracted. It's uh, it's crazy. So I'm I, I've been really waiting for some conclusive uh, evidence, but uh, I suspect that it 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 is there. There is a there is a connection yeah. because well, I guess uh, we these... can definitely say insulin is related because we there's plenty of papers and evidence which shows that the inflammatory yeah, but that, that's, response that's, leads that's to already, resistance. That's already that's the, downstream, the, right? That's already uh, the chronic hyperinsulinemia. So when you have acute insulin responses, that those are actually anti-inflammatory. So oh, okay. so so uh, the the uh, kind of every meal creates an inflammatory response. Uh, there is a nice article from a Swiss uh, group from Basel, I believe, uh, and they found that uh, interleukin beta, interleukin one beta, goes up after every meal, and it stimulates insulin in the, in the uh, in the beta cells. So mm -hmm. it's another factor which can augment uh, glucose-stimulated uh, in insulin secretion, uh, GCIS, and and uh, and uh, it, it it is. It is uh, necessary to to provide a higher insulin response so that you have a higher anti-inflammatory response so that all this food which comes in a wave uh, like the insulin curve mm -hmm. uh, and it helps resolve uh, this, this inflammation which the food right. uh, creates so ac acutely insulin is anti-inflammatory that's that's clear and also gip is anti-inflammatory which uh, these two usually act uh, perfectly together. They have uh, very similar actions on, on different uh, cell types. Uh, it's the problem when you have uh, uh, chronic hyperinsulinemia, but right. the chicken and egg question is how chronic hyperinsulinemia is created. 
because that's not clear. A lot of people say that you eat carbs, you have high insulin, and then you have chronic hyperinsulinemia. That, that is a very important link missing between the two. Yes, because exactly. Because having, having uh, higher uh, insulin peaks or, or even uh, areas under the curve uh, doesn't uh, lead to to high to chronic hyperinsulinemia. Right. So that, I mean, that by, usually... by my approximation and research, it seems like inflama chronic inflammation is probably the driver there because tnf alpha and il6 for example cause yeah, yeah, yeah. insulin resistance at the muscle yes. which then could lead to insulin resistance elsewhere which is good you want it for the immune response because that's kind of i guess how the body diverts fuel into the circulation for the immune system to, to use which seems like a good response in the case of infection or uh, yeah, that's why that's why half half of my open tabs on my iPad deal with immunometabolism, which is a new kind of a new uh, science branch, which deal with deal with uh, this bidirectional uh, relationship between systemic uh, metabolism and and uh, the intracellular. Uh, metabolism in in uh, immune cells, and it it seems that uh, these two have uh, a very interesting relationship. Systemic metabolism can influence uh, the type of uh, polarization or type of immune activation, but at the same time, at the same time, immune cells uh, influence systemic met metabolism so that they alter uh, fuel fluxes. Uh, mm -hmm. towards the desirable, so that it supports the the actual immune response. Right. So it's it's completely bi-directional, uh, and it's a, it's it's a fascinating new area of uh, of uh, science. Yeah, that is really interesting. I think there was actually an article that was written for the the lay public about the relationship between the immune system and um, things like that uh, in the Atlantic recently, where they looked at taking antibiotics causing weight gain, which was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, it's it's uh, and we we yeah. It's not nice to say, but we don't understand shit in this area. So uh, yeah. I think we, we, we really need to uh, dig into this uh, a lot more deeply uh, in order to, to better understand uh, how these things work. Just I think uh, one or two days ago, I posted a study on, on Twitter published in Cell Metabolism, uh, which uh, uncovered that uh, even though uh, T cells uh, um, are characterized by uh, this an anaerobic uh, glycolysis or glycolysis or whatever it's pronounced in mm -hmm. English, uh, but it's not driven by that. The inflammation itself is driven by impaired fat oxidation um, in, in, in the cells. Uh, it's a typical uh, type 2 diabetes-like activation of uh, T helper 17 uh, cells. It's a very nice uh, article. And ag again, it re reinforces that we shouldn't uh, stop at blood glucose when, when uh, talking about uh, diabetes. Right. Blood glucose is a, is a very late symptom and uh, we, we should look upstream. Uh, and and uh, just one step above is, uh, is uh, this uh, kind of lipotoxicity, mm -hmm. um, this uh, fat overflow, which causes directly causes uh, hyperglycemia and, and it seems that it causes the, the impairment also in mitochondrial fat oxidation <laughs> so um yeah, i think the low carb just, community uh, is kind of pushed towards looking at insulin instead of glucose but i'm guessing that there's even more to it than that that needs to be looked at there's a pretty strong link between the immune system and insulin and 
Um, yeah, I find that a lot of people have a relatively poor understanding of uh, of uh, immunology. And uh, just a few years ago, I also did so. <laughs> it's 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 no wonder what I what I learned uh, in the mid mid nineties or early nineties uh, is completely outdated. Right. Uh, this field has been uh, developing so fast; it's it's crazy. Yeah, and, I mean, there's uh, so I, much I, to learn, and it's really yeah, complicated I, I, with all these cold light receptors and almost completely re relearn uh, immunology from, from, from scratch because uh, it's, it's so much different now than it, it, it was 30 years ago. It's, mm -hmm. um, That's pretty wild. Very, yeah, very, I mean, it's been very interesting to read all the, the immune system research and learn about the, the adaptive and innate. And yeah, and, and when you say, when, when you say it's, it's the inflammation stupid, then they say, oh, come on, inflammation is there to resolve the problem and uh, inflammation is too broad a term. So what, what is, what's the problem with inflammation? Then you, you start explaining all this stuff that, yeah, there are different types of uh, immune activations. There is the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And then uh, you, you can have a, a different types of uh, polarization of cells. And it's 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 a uh, it's a spectrum. It's not even you have an M1 type macrophage and an M2. No, you have a spectrum. One is closer to the M1, and another one is is, is at the, on a different place on the spectrum. So it's uh, it's not as uh, simple. But but uh, yeah, if you, if you want to use one simple single term, single word uh, to 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 phrase what's the problem, it's it's, it's the inflammation. And then of course you have to look for the the root of the inflammation, where the inflammation is coming. Right. And uh, what what uh, you usually find that uh, all these diseases, uh, cancer, uh, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, all these are very closely related to visceral obesity. Mm -hmm. So then you start thinking about what visceral obesity is. I mean, why you would uh, store a lot of fat within your abdomen instead of uh, instead of under your skin? What's what? Why does it make sense? And then you realize the, the, the role of different uh, adipose tissues. Uh, hey there. And um, hey, sorry for uh, joining a little late here. It's not no late. Better, I, better late I, than I have, never. <laughs> I have plenty of time, so um, we can start all over if you want. <laughs> no, I've, I've I think we got some good content. I think we're good. Yeah. So uh, then, then you start uh, considering, uh, then you start realizing that uh, adipose tissues have been a little bit misunderstood and uh, they, they are very, very different. Different depots represent different things. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you have a look at your bone marrow adipose tissue, which is around 10% of your overall adipose tissue mass, uh, it, it behaves very differently compared to any other. Uh, adipose depots, or right. when you when you are looking at uh, the mesentery as a, as a specific depot, it uh, it, be, it behaves very differently, even compared to the omentum which hangs from your stomach, and uh, not to mention your perivascular fat depots and and your epicardial uh, fat depot, and and uh, and uh, even even your subcutaneous fat can be divided to superficial, deep, and they behave differently. So it's it's crazy. Wow. I mean, uh, this There's so area much of, to dig into here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, and then then you realize how uh, certain adipose tissues, basically all of them, but uh, some more than the others, work together with your immune system. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, in a way that uh, whenever you have immune activation, the surrounding uh, fat cells are also activated 
and they uh, start uh, providing the necessary lipids for, for the immune cells. And actually, they provide these lipids in a very selective way. It's not just they spur out all the lipids they contain in a random way, but they uh, provide the omega-3s and omega-6s, which are necessary for the immune activation, you know, uh, producing oh, wow. the pro pro prostaglandins and, and everything. And then That's they, very interesting. Then they increase their 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 mass around the, the for example the lymph nodes lymph nodes if you have an activated lymph node it's it's uh, it's well established that the surrounding adipose tissue is activated and expands so when you see an adipose expansion uh, in in uh, some tissues more than in, in, in others it can be considered as a, as an immune activation hmm. so if you have a very high if you have adipose uh, depots with very normally very high immune activity as the mesentery, which drains uh, much of the small intestine and some of the uh, large intestines, uh, then is is it an immune act over immune overactivation or overfiltration of something which is escaping uh, the the intestines, or is it just eating too much? So I'm going to uh, lean towards the immune activation. Yeah. I think. What I think I is think really there's... interesting about this space is that there's constantly this tension between a maker versus a marker, like is A causing B or is B causing A? Because that's like a, a uh, personal fat threshold hypothesis would have told you that the reason that the inflammation happens is because we ate too much. But all yeah, of a sudden... Yeah, yeah. yeah but, it's, it's very interesting. I think uh, I was one of the guys, uh, something like three, four years ago, who who very strongly championed uh, the idea of the personal fat threshold. But uh, I have moved along, and some people don't uh, really like to see that. Uh, see me moving along, and, and I find myself uh, in different camps all the time because uh, some remain, and I move, and then uh, I keep, I, I change my mind, you know, in a little bit at least, and I and I tell that uh, it, it it might not be the initiate initiating uh, step in in this uh, pathway, and uh, what we see could be considered this way and then they say ah but we had a, a, a beautiful solution you eat too much uh, your your subcutaneous fat overflows and then it's deposited in your in your visceral fat depots and then your visceral fat depot overflows then it deposit it's deposited in your liver and things are explained perfectly so uh, then then you start looking into uh, all the studies in in rodents and in rodents it definitely works otherwise so it's, it's not how it works in rodents. And then you question, okay, let us see whether it works the same way in humans as in rodents or, or not. Uh, there are so many important differences between the two. I mentioned uh, the, the, the length of the small intestines, the, the mm -hmm. ratio between the small intestinal surface to the, to the, to the large intestinal surface. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure everything is 100% uh, translatable, of course, but but uh, there are some some uh, very nice similarities which you, which we can use at least as a starting point for a, for another hypothesis uh, apologies right. if i miss this but we i've heard a lot about the incretin response and now we talk a lot about immune response and they almost seem like they're independent is there an overlap between the two yeah i, I have i've been uh, trying to find uh, some kind of uh, supporting evidence or any evidence for that matter because uh, information is scarce um there are only two groups or two two guys uh, who are deeply into this um, i think i will be able to provide references after that but it's it's mainly about gfp1 and how is it uh, how the l cells are also sensors for the immune system 
and provide uh, information to the surrounding immune cells about uh, provide clues about what's happening um, in, in uh, within the lumen and uh, there is almost nothing about GIP um, but but we have indirect information that suggests that uh, uh, GIP and very high very frequent GIP uh, curves uh, kind of uh, inflammatory in adipose tissues and uh, what happens in in visceral uh, adipose depots, for example, in the mesentery, which is very, very close and probably sees uh, much, much higher uh, concentrations of these hormones, uh, we, we just don't know. So th there is there is no information, basically. Uh, it's very, very compelling or even tempting to say that uh, this this imbalance, what you see when, when you disrupt plant structure, uh, carbohydrate-rich plant structure, uh, there is a direct connection to inflammatory responses, but uh, the, the the information is simply not there. So I would love to say because uh, this is kind of a, a pet theory uh, for me that uh, what what I discovered uh, for 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 the hormones uh, it's fully translatable to the inflammation part, but um, unfortunately the information is very scarce. And I guess to you know throw together an ad hoc hypothesis, which I know Nick doesn't like, but uh, you know you could say that let's say uh, that eating these acellular carbohydrates causes an imbalanced um, increase in response, which then stimulates hunger sooner, means that you're eating more frequently, which means that you're getting more opportunities to have immune activation and inflammation and have bad things happen. And you're providing more fuel to the bad microbiome and all of that so that could yeah, be a, uh, you know a, a weak link. That, that I think uh, the the link to hunger is definitely there. And uh, um, since I uh, gave this presentation in in Prague uh, May last year, there have been a few nice studies that uh, uncovered uh, further molecular mechanism mechanisms. For example, there is a there is a mice study which clearly shown which clearly showed how the um, the uh, increasing uh, ghrelin, you know, the hunger hormone, mm -hmm. coincides with the dropping glucose, and you need both uh, in parallel so that these uh, uh, agouti-like uh, neurons in your in your hypothalamus perceive it as a kind of a danger signal, and it creates uh, the hunger feeling. So it's not enough uh, that you have the ghrelin; you 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 need a concomitant uh, drop in in glucose. And uh, this is exactly what you see when you eat these uh, ultra-processed uh, carbohydrate-rich foods, that uh, you have this hyperinsulinemic response, this uh, disproportionately high insulin, and this disproportionately high insulin just pushes down your glucose below baseline, and it's very far, very fast uh, dropping of glucose coincides with uh, with a, a very quick uh, surge in in ghrelin, and that's a clear hunger signal. So that that can nicely explain or what uh, the community usually calls the, the carb craving or the, the this 90 to 150 minute uh, hunger feeling uh, after even a large large meal. But, right, uh, the, the was, Chinese buffet effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when, when this large meal uh, creates this hyperinsulinemic and uh, hypoglyc might hypoglycemic effect, uh, then you clearly see this one. And actually it was shown without uh, some of the hormones uh, even discovered then uh, back in 1977, 
uh, and it was published uh, in the Lancet, you know, the, the famous or infamous apple processing study when uh, they measured um, blood glucose, insulin and uh, subjective hunger. And uh, back in the 70s, these guys were really healthy, uh, uh, lean and healthy. So it was before the obesity epidemic. Right. Uh, it was relatively easy to find healthy controls. And everybody had a fasting glucose of 70-something. <laughs> and then uh, they, they, they uh, uh, saw this uh, quick surge of, uh, in, in insulin after uh, drinking the apple juice, for example, uh, compared to eating the whole apples. And then uh, it, the, I think their blood glucose went down to something like uh, three, which we multiply by 18. 18. What's that? Yeah. So it went down 50, to 54. Yeah. That's uh, that can be considered hypoglycemia, or not not even mild, but uh, severe hypoglycemia in average uh, people. And mm -hmm. then uh, in those cases, they they noted the, the increased uh, subjective hunger. So this was demonstrated uh, how how many forty more yeah. than forty years ago. Long time ago. Do you guys think so? One of the things that I'm concerned about is when you look at one of these studies where they're talking about endotoxin absorption, is that they're they're using healthy controls, which in modern, um, just yesterday, Body Spec sent me their percentile curves for visceral adipose tissue in in Americans, and what's crazy is, you know, at this point I fit into like below the the twentieth percentile mark on at the twenty to thirty, which is the lowest range they have, and that basically just kind of monotonically increases, such that you know, in a um, in a twenty year old, you've got their, your twentieth percentile would be something like point one eight or point two pounds of the VAT. By the time you get to I think fifties or sixties, the the twentieth percentile is up at a full pound of visceral adipose tissue, and it just mm. kind of I'd be interested to see use VAT as a proxy of, of metabolic health, if that seems reasonable, to see like right. what percentage of people, because it looks like the number of people that would fall into some threshold are almost vanishingly small in the US at this point in time. I think it was, um, it was a uh, Chinese study, so I don't know how much it's, uh, to what extent it's applicable to a general population, but they found the, the uh, uh, with ultrasound uh, mesenteric fat thickness of uh, 10 millimeters which is le less than half an inch uh, as, the, as, the, as the threshold and above these 10 millimeters every single millimeter additional uh, thickness uh, represented a 37 percent increase of uh, metabolic uh, disease. Wow. Millimeter is uh, one-tenth of a centimeter, a centimeter yeah. is uh, less than half of an inch. So, uh, so uh, every every millimeter adds uh, a um, thirty-seven percent extra uh, so risk. So, if you have a, if you have an extra centimeter, you you have an extra half of half of inch. That's uh, uh, twelve point five times thirty-seven percent. That is wild. That's, that's, that's half. That's half huge, an inch of an extra huge amount extra mesenteric uh, fat. That's not a big deal. Yeah. If you consider a waistline uh, half an inch uh, thicker, that's uh, almost nothing, and yeah, that's, uh, that's that. already four hundred something uh, percent uh, extra risk. Wow, that's pretty crazy. So and you talked about uh, acellular carbohydrates as a problem, uh, and we've seen. Yeah, I, I don't like the word acellular. I, I like the the, the phrase uh, quick absorbing because okay, it's all it's all about the speed of absorption. Okay, um, so do you think? Or, 
you know, looking at those which have increased in the food chain, we also have, you know, all kinds of food additives and potentially more fructose, maybe emulsifiers or liquid fats. Do you think any yep. of those are particularly responsible for the increase in chronic disease that we've seen and how it relates yeah. to permeability and um, increase yeah, secretion I, and all that? I, I don't know about any, but I would say many, many of those uh, are responsible for for uh, metabolic problems in, in general. Uh, emulsifiers, yes, definitely. It's um, I think the evidence is uh, rather straightforward. Um, regarding that, um, we have a lot of uh, uh, chemicals uh, in our uh, food chain and not only in, in the food chain, but uh, in our homes, uh, like different uh, plastic derivatives and, and uh, BPAs. The, the new BPAs seem at least as bad as, as uh, BPA uh, A or whatever yeah, was the it's not old one. A anymore. Or BPA it's BPA S, S or, or B it's or whatever. It doesn't matter. It's it's at least as bad. So <laughs> so uh, we have all these endo endocrine disruptors, and it, it uh, they seem to converge upon the same very same pathways of uh, of uh, hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance and an increased gut permeability and uh, enhanced uh, immune activation. So and then we have our other factors in our lifestyles other than food, uh, sleep. It's very uh, anything stress related, basically, because uh, right. uh, uh, inadequate sleep or, or bad quality sleep uh, creates a stress response, and and the, the psychological stress, uh, other other kind of chronic stress factors, you know, in our lifestyles. Uh, again, uh, you know, Cushing's syndrome, mm -hmm. where you have a increased very high yeah glucocorticoid yep. secretion and uh, it's it's uh, associated with a huge uh, abdominal uh, fat deposition yep. so if you uh, if you have systemic high cortisol that creates uh, selective deposition of fat in in visceral depots uh, but uh, and some is that, do you think that's causal to or is that causally related to increased intestinal permeability does i know that stress increases intestinal permeability or that's yeah been yes, shown think, in some studies but yeah is, i think it's, it's all directly impact uh, i think uh, chronic chronically high cortisol yes <laughs> so, so that, i guess that, that, that ties almost all of it back i mean that's that's pretty fascinating that you know yeah if you, if you check all these factors you know smoking is a very high very high risk factor for cardiovascular disease mm -hmm. smoking is associated with a disruption of uh, gut barrier function if you uh, have uh, mice smoke uh, they develop all this uh, visceral uh, adiposity. Uh, mm -hmm. Smoking cessation uh, comes with a huge improvement in, in, uh, in this biosis in, in mice. So I think uh, all these uh, channel into the same uh, old uh, mechanisms. And what you see is that uh, it's, it's, it's no wonder because there is a very close connection between uh, the lungs and the gut. There is a gut-lung axis. Mm -hmm. uh, now, now it's recognized. So. Um, wow. The, the, the lung mucosa uh, has only local um, local uh, lymph uh, support. And then uh, it, it seems that some of the, the, the visceral fat uh, takes over the load from, from the lungs. So wow. these, these uh, stuff, uh, stuff escapes all these uh, toxins and then it uh, gets deposited in the visceral fat, creates the inflammation, inflammation creates uh, the permeab increased permeability and then uh, you are there. So uh, there, is, there is almost nothing 
for which you you cannot find a connection to gut uh, issues. Is is there that's, a reason that is there a reason that that permeability is driven by inflammation? Is it just a damage hype, or is there an, a, a, a <clears throat> potentially a reason for that that was beneficial? It seems I think I have at least uh, I think three different uh, papers uh, sh showing different uh, barriers opening up in response to inflammatory processes. Uh, one one we have already discussed uh, was when when adipose tissue expands and it, it, it needs to quickly expand, it, it can be a reverse causality uh, because at least in mice, it was uh, shown that uh, for healthy adipose tissue expansion, the necessary inflammation is produced by the body by opening up the, the gut barrier. Because mm -hmm. otherwise the body cannot create the necessary inflammation, cannot create the the uh, the activation of, for example, the macrophages, which requires the TLR4 uh, type of activation, and uh, there are no internal uh, ligands, at least not in, not in, in enough numbers. So it requires some kind of uh, inflammation, and where where we can get the inflammation, uh, we have these little bodies uh, living in our our guts, and then just let them in. And, that would be uh, kind of an interesting way to explain the personal fat threshold if you were <clears throat> if you had a very impermeable uh, intestine your body couldn't expand your fat cells appropriately or if you didn't have you know as reactive uh, immune system or something like that then you're you wouldn't be able to expand your adipose tissue and then you would have um, you know excess fuel floating around insulin resistance all of that kind of stuff from the lipotoxicity be kind yeah. of interesting we also discussed the um the, the, the different route uh, normally long chain fatty acids take so that they they don't they are not uh, absorbed into the the blood circulation but they instead they are absorbed into the lymphatics so that they can go first uh, to the to the mesenteric lymph nodes uh, so that uh, they can filter chylomicrons for lps for example uh, before entering the circulation, and uh, what what uh, a leaky gut is, in fact, if you if you have higher LPS load on your on your mesenteric immune system, can can it can that be considered leaky gut? Uh, it doesn't necessarily. So I think um, uh, if you have this uh, intercellular openings between the junctions. Then, it, then your your lipopolysaccharide takes a different route. It goes directly to the portal circulation and reaches the liver first. Then, if the liver is overwhelmed, then it reaches other tissues. Um, it, it's uh, it's very difficult to to see how all this happens and and uh, what could potentially explain the differences between uh, what we see in different people. So yeah, you you see. Uh, the, the extremely huge, those almost thousand pounds, they they never get uh, diabetic. Right. They seem to be able to expand their their uh, subcutaneous fat in, indefinitely. So that's uh, that's crazy. Other, other people, uh, it's most likely a huge part is genetics. But what in genetics? That's a that's a huge question yeah, mark. Seems like there's there's not a huge amount of research on the genetics of the immune system. Like I was trying to look. I've done a whole genome sequence, and I was like, hmm, I wonder if I have any toll-like receptor variants or any uh, my D88 variants or MD2 variants. And like, there's very few identified or researched 
variants. There's yeah, a couple for toll-like receptors, and those have interesting impacts on statins efficacy and things like that. Um, but the, the MyD88 couldn't find a single thing. Yeah, and, and the problem is, I believe that uh, little is, some is determined by genetics, but much more is determined by epigenetics. Right. And then in intrauteral conditioning, mm. and and then uh, how you are being exposed to, to uh, microbes uh, during and after birth. Right. Uh, those are those are critical. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing that the hygiene hypothesis does probably play some kind of yeah, role crit here. critical critical times for for proper immune activation and, uh, and immune immune maturation. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you if you miss that few first months or or the first year, it's it's very difficult to create the same same kind of um, activation for your immune system later. That's why all the all the allergies and and uh, autoimmune diseases uh, spread like crazy because uh, people just uh, have uh, under under uh, conditioned immune systems and when they when they actually finally meet with something they overreact. Right. So yeah, it's it's a, it's, it's a allergies. delicate it's a delicate balance between uh, between activation and tolerance. Uh, your your immune system needs to find the the right balance. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the the intestinal immune system is kind of unique from from this perspective because it's always in connection with a lot of uh, external stuff, and right. uh, and uh, it has to be tolerant because if it's not tolerant, it's a continuous high level of of inflammation, which which is uh, counterproductive. So. Uh, for example, I still don't fully understand if the problem is uh, over tolerance or over activation. It's, it sounds uh, sounds weird, I believe, that uh, we cannot really tell. But uh, based on the hyperinsulinemia as, as a marker, and as we discussed earlier, uh, acute insulin responses are part of the anti-inflammatory response to, to each and every meal. And when you have chronic hyperinsulinemia, can it be considered? Could it be considered as a uh, a chronic non-resolving inflammation? So you have you have this resolving phase stuck and going on and going on, trying to resolve, but you cannot because right. you have a, a, the the stimulation coming at the same time continuously. So hyperinsulinemia could be uh, thought of as as a uh, resolution phase chronically stuck, for example. In terms of to mask the effects of the or reduce the inflammation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so um, these are these are things we at least I don't don't really understand. So uh, that I've been delving into this uh, immunometabolism thing for for a year or so now, but uh, it's a very deep rabbit hole. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the things or, that I really want to explain is this observation by Nina Teicholz when they went back in the medical records and they were trying to find evidence of angina or heart disease prior to 1900 or so. And the conclusion was that there was not, relative to other diseases, even chronic diseases like gout that would have triggered a lot of um, pain and actually showed up in the medical records with frequency, that it was very rare to get a diagnosis of angina or. I mean, much less a, a, a heart attack prior to 1915. And that was very interesting to me because, I mean, a lot of the popular uh, writings on the subject say, oh, heart disease was always a thing and it will always will be a thing, but it's just because of life expectancy that we all died at 37 years of age in the 1800s. That's why we don't see it. But that 
it's a very interesting observation to try to explain from this perspective because from what I understand, there were some similarities in the 1800s with our diet. Like they appear to have had some amount of bread in their diet. The exact level is definitely not clear. You know, it wasn't like there wasn't stress in the 1800s. You know, they fought wars in the 1800s. But, and so I, I kind of, understanding the differences in the environment and the nutrition and all of these things that could help pin down, because there are many different possibilities. And it's unfortunate that I haven't found better data looking into, you know, what were the differences in nitrogen isotope ratios between someone in the 1800s in the United States, for example, versus uh, by the time they started seeing these problems in earnest in like the 1930s and 40s. Oh, that's interesting. That's something yeah. that should be able to be studied. We should did, have you look for that. I have, and no one yeah. has yet been able to point me because stable isotope analysis, I think, would be injured because kind of yeah, we would know root, how much protein they're eating. The, the root <laughs> thesis of the, the the vegan ideology is that we used to eat nothing but grains. Basically, that the grain consumption in the U.S. in 1880 was double what it was in 1970, and that that fell off a cliff, and that the absence of the great grains in the diet is the reason for all of our maladies. Um, ignoring evidence that like Lewis and Clark ate eight pounds of meat a day and that in theory they should have been having diabetes if uh, eight pounds of meat a day is sufficient to cause. But I'm, that's the kind of thing that I want to do to kind of tie this line of inquiry into the heart diseases to understand those differences, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I understand that most people like to see uh, simple ideas or at least uh, pinpointing one factor that, that uh, does the major contribution to 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 this health uh, problem of our age but uh, uh, I believe uh, in most cases yes diet is the biggest one but uh, we we have all these others uh, I mentioned uh, the sleep the chronic stress uh, the the BPAs and and, and many others which uh, may converge upon the same uh, pathways and then then uh, there is obviously that there there have there has to be a uh, kind of a threshold. What, what uh, when it is reached, then uh, your, it wreaks havoc on your system. You 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 have some capacity to correct, and then it it also comes to uh, the uh, autophagic, the, the the chronic suppression of autophagy, for example. Continuous eating from early morning to late right. evening, twenty-four-seven, uh, and then uh, every day, every week, uh, every month, and every year. So there is there is no stop to this in in life uh, lives of most most people. And uh, I have a thread on Twitter running uh, on this uh, chronic uh, suppression of autophagy, and it's it's linked to so many. Um, problems we see uh, developing. Yeah, so I found system, some interesting papers. The system is uh, the system is uh, capable of uh, getting rid of the problems if you leave enough time. Right. But if there is no time, there is no getting rid getting reading or whatever it's uh, however it's, you say that. Makes sense. Yeah, I came across some papers that was showing like reverse cholesterol transport is modulated by autophagy and. Um, seems like that's a pretty important process that both. Yeah, I guess, in cardiovascular disease, uh, the, the immune stuff cannot be ignored. I think uh, all this uh, debate uh, coming and going on on, uh, on uh, different uh, social media that uh, LDL is uh, important or not really important marker or whatever. I mean, when when you when you can clearly explain 
um, one alteration with an ups upstream event, uh, any any focus on 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 this uh, downstream association should be uh, well not ignored, but just okay, it's there and let's move exactly. on. So when you when you see uh, on the balance, you you, you see both ends uh, changing in the wrong direction. When when you have an inf inflammatory response, even an acute inflammation or an infection, and you see that uh, uh, serum amyloid A substitutes ApoA1 uh, in in HDL, and and uh, your your LDL changes to a to a much more atherogenic uh, profile in, in in one or two days. And and then it, it, when it's resolved, it goes back to normal. And wow. uh, so why don't we just think of uh, the problem as a as a chronic uh, inflammatory phase? And then you you look mm -hmm. into okay, what type of inflammation? And uh, why why in some cases we have uh, increased LDLC, for example, while in in uh, in most cases when you have an infection, LDLC drops. And uh, in, in many cases, uh, when you have cardiovascular disease, high risk, LDSC increases. And what's the difference? Is there a, is there a type of inflammation which can increase uh, your LDSC? Is there an exception? And when you look for it, you find that, that, that there is. Uh, there is one specific inflammation which uh, causes uh, elevated LDSC, and it's called small intestinal inflammation. Well, oh, very interesting. <laughs> very interesting, that. When, when you know what to look for, it's it's much easier. So, oh, yeah. if I wanted, I mean, one of the other places that I think is fuzzy at this point is if you were talking about the the link between the inflammatory response and the circulating endotoxins and the initial stages of atherogenesis, because the pathology of of early stage atherogenesis begins with kind of the abnormal dedifferentiation and proliferation of vascular smooth muscle cells that are kind of rather deep within the wall of the artery. They're kind of like in the media and they begin to grow into the intima. And that it's, I'm, we talk a lot about the endothelial interactions because if you have circulating endotoxins with low and slow flow that expresses TLR4 and could kickstart the immune system. But in, in theory, you know, there are many different pathways that could get you from that to, to the, these beginning stages. Um, and I'm just not sure if you have any insight on, uh, on that well, region. Uh, the, 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 the primary question we should ask first is whether this is really important or not. Um, in, in this case, I actually prefer the view of, uh, of the, uh, the balance theory so uh, what what is used in obesity that you are consuming more calories than what you what you uh, expand and then that's the the root cause of obesity which is of course a ridic ridiculous idea uh, <laughs> for a, for a biological system that it's uh, thermodynamics which causes the problem so but in this case when you see something building up uh, you can actually use at least for a thought experiment you use the same uh, logic that uh, uh, you can have uh, increased delivery of, of the bad stuff and or uh, reduced uh, removal of the bad stuff. And uh, what, what you find is that in this case, actually, it, it uh, pretty much works like that. You have these uh, oxidized uh, LDLs and, and uh, the, the really bad stuff uh, increasing uh, with, uh, with inflammatory responses. 
and uh, and uh, in small uh, dense LDL, uh, the oxidized uh, lipids are, are much much higher, and li uh, lipoprotein A, it's a prime carrier of uh, of oxidized lipids, so that's why it's so heterogenic. Um, and uh, when you check the the other side of the equation, the removal of uh, of uh, cholesterol, for example, uh, reverse reverse uh, cholesterol transport, uh, you you recognize that uh, as soon as uh, uh, the inflammatory response exchanges your your APOA1 for for SAA serum amyloid A. It loses function. It, it not only loses function; it becomes pro-inflammatory. So it is there uh, to support the the inflammatory the, the immune activation. And then you have the imbalance between the two uh, on both sides: increased delivery and reduced uh, removal. So uh, the funny thing is that in this case it might very well uh, be valid, be a very valid model, yeah. uh, contrary to the ob obesity uh, model where it's, it's just funny. I, yeah. I, I, I prefer to use the uh, analogy, which, uh, which 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 is met by uh, huge. Uh, um, I don't know. I, I get crazy responses when I say that uh, is fever caused by an inc increase in heat production and and uh, and the re reduction in uh, heat dissipation that's a thermodynamic model of uh, of fever uh, mm. there is no way that your your body temperature could go up without uh, either inc increasing heat production or reducing uh, heat uh, dissipation it it must work like that because it's basic logic it's, it comes from the first law of ther thermodynamics exactly and why and they say that, rich. They say that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about something completely different. This is this is the typical response I get. You are talking about something completely different. You don't you know you don't understand this. You've broken no, I, the I'm, perfect I'm, hypothesis. I'm, I'm I'm having the same analogy. It's it's yeah. it's it's about energy. It's about energy conservation. Your body temperature can only increase if you produce more heat and or uh, remove less. That's basic logic, and and uh, it 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 has to uh, follow the the logic of the first law, and then they yeah. look at me that uh, this guy is crazy, but but I, I come on, you are crazy because you are telling me that this is the the root cause of obesity. Yeah. It's it's not a it's not a biological approach. I understand uh, thermodynamics at least to that level. I'm not a physicist, of course, <laughs> but but I understand that uh, the 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 underlying energetics uh, must follow. And it, yeah, and I think it does. The, the thermodynamic approach is pretty readily at least uh, discounted by uh, anecdotes and probably by certain feeding studies. But, you know, I, I love seeing these old zero carb forums where people are like, I'm going to eat 5000 calories a day of mostly fat for 30 days. And the guy gained no weight. And you said you've done the same thing. I've done it recently. I think we're going to try and put together, you know, an end of many overfeeding experiment where we'll get people on a you know, zero carb diet to eat four or 5,000 calories a day and get them to weigh themselves every day and we'll see what happens. And my one of the experiments, one of the experiments, I've always, one of the experiments I've always wanted to do was um, to, you know, if you had people who were overweight and you, you wanted them to lose weight, but instead of, you randomized them all to a, a meat only diet where it was just basically steak of some quality. And then what you did is you randomized them between like a, a low calorie, a target calorie, and a high calorie amount of meat. I, I would be absolutely fascinated to see what the weight loss looked like in each of those different groups because I don't think, I, I'm suspicious that it would not follow a, a caloric balance hypothesis of when weight loss happened. I, yeah, my, 
you have to when you are enforcing um, a highly oxidative, oxidative uh, metabolism uh, you have to you have to combine it with a toxin at least with uh, with some compounds which are considered as uh, toxins in high amounts for uh, I, I guess you know the the corn oil overfeeding study from also from the 70s so uh, those guys on low carb uh, drinking corn oil uh, all day long uh, were i think they didn't gain up to five six thousand uh, calories a day and uh, most of them kept losing up to four thousand like crazy because the body wanted to burn off all this uh, dangerous uh, linoleic acid like crazy wow huh. and then and, and uh, you, you just need to find uh, the corresponding physiological pathways uh, how bile acids uh, stimulate uh, uncoupling through whatever uh, lipid uh, metabolites and these kind of things are yeah there's some amazing. super interesting stuff around that that we haven't really looked into um, or that science hasn't seemed to look into too much, which is the uh, fibroblast, fibroblast growth factors, FGFs. And there's like yeah, a whole bunch yeah. of those. And some of those yeah, are, are stimulated are a big bunch, by... a big bunch of them. Yeah. Some of them are stimulated by like, you know, by, by cholesterol, by fat-soluble vitamins, which, you know, leads to like, the, do, um, do fat-soluble vitamins and cholesterol increase satiety independent of caloric content? It seems like probably since that has a... I think FGF19 has increases. It has a similar response to insulin, but without lipogenesis. Yep. Which is like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. And those are not well studied at all. Yeah, you, you have a lot of uh, stuff on, on that, but I, it's it's really inc inconclusive, I believe. It's um, you can spend days reading, and uh, and uh, there is no TLDR. <laughs> at the end so just okay i read the uh, 10 studies but what what the hell um yeah we we still don't know a lot of uh things about how the body works and that's why when uh, when people stop reading and uh, and uh, just uh, are stuck at a certain certain level or certain point a certain level of understanding and they are happy with that because it proves their point or proves or follows their their beliefs um you, you see that uh, it's so common. Yeah. yeah. It's a uh, confirmation uh, bias that, uh, oh, this study fits perfectly. So I added to the two dozens of uh, my library and I'm a happy man. And so I guess I, following on from that, um, just kind of generally, how do you identify research that is, you know, of interest and of high quality? Yeah, I, I have a, I have a, different uh, feeds coming. I have uh, one list, uh, Twitter list of, uh, of um, journals. And um, then uh, I have uh, newsletters, the old way of uh, emails. And then I have a pop crawler uh, preset searches, four or five uh, uh, pre set up uh, searches coming every other day and um, i have uh, 8k almost 8k of studies in my own library now and reading stuff and finding references finding citing literature of of uh, papers what i'm uh, reading and uh, yeah i still use some of the old uh, rss feeds nice 
Sometimes so when you find a paper that comes in via one of those methods, what do you use to evaluate it? What do you have like a mental checklist of how to identify if the, the paper is kind of worth including into uh, your mental model? Yeah, it's it's difficult to tell. After a few K papers, uh, you, you have you developed this kind of a sixth sense of kind <laughs> of an instinct that uh, if you start reading the abstract, uh, the, the language um, and, and, uh, and uh, um, you know, Maybe it's biased, but uh, you check the, the journal. What kind of journal it is? Uh, is it something at, at least uh, relevant or, or reliable? It's not a predatory journal or whatever. Right. And um, and uh, yeah, many things. And then uh, you do the quick. If, if if you find it interesting based on the abstract, uh, then you do a kind of a skimming. I develop this uh, quick reading. I just just. Uh, read a little bit into the introduction one of my favorite parts is the introduction because then you then you get the, the type of insight what the researchers have how deeply they are into this uh right. or what their understanding is in, in this area uh if yeah, they give up that and their background yeah, if, 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 if they good. provide a very very short background or or, or introduction and uh, that's that they they want to further emphasize the, their results all the the, yeah. the 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 sometimes meaningless uh, results but if, if there is a very nice introduction just just the right one the the length and the depth and and everything is there and it, Often you find the best references in the introduction part. So if it's a good paper, the introduction is one of the best parts. If it's a poor paper, the introduction is usually one of the worst uh, parts. I, I had thought about at one point just like showing people what I consider to be like a very good paper on heart disease versus like some of the stuff that somehow qualifies as, as a quality paper in the journal atherosclerosis. You know, like what they look like. And one of the things for me was this idea that like, they should be able to tell you the things that we don't know and wh what they're like, where you would look, you know, we don't understand this and here's what you might do to look into that. Or here's another paper that provides background on that. Or yeah. when, when someone says they know everything, that's for me that, I don't know, that's one of the things I kind of disqualify a paper immediately. Yeah. Sometimes you feel that it's an educating piece instead of a research uh, publication. So yeah. Uh, that they want to convey a certain message, or or uh, there is some some kind of a push behind. Yeah, it's it sometimes uh, leaks leaks through the text. Yep. Um, that, <laughs> yeah, that we found some, that some uh, agenda behind, or yeah, I I, I, I just uh, somebody asked me today if uh, there is a there is a publication. It, it, it's uh, it was accepted after review, and uh, this is the first publication my my name is on actually as an author. Oh. It was a. Uh, it's just an observational research done in my Facebook group, and uh, then I also contributed a very little. Uh, I added some useful comments and references uh, to the text, and then I was included as as, as an author. Like uh, I'm a participant in the lower insulin Facebook group in the USA. Okay, <laughs> so that's that's the official. Uh, uh, contribution from from uh, my side in the paper, but the the the, the first author replied when I congratulated on the, the acceptance uh, that uh, that uh, it's not the New England Journal of Medicine, but still it's, it's a good first step with this kind of uh, ketogenic uh, observational stuff. And then I said mm -hmm. that, yeah, I find this paper interesting, but. Uh, I get the, the the weekly newsletter from from the New England Journal of Medicine, and uh, most weeks I find nothing interesting to to read. It should be renamed the New England Journal of uh, 
what was that? I added uh, symptom uh, treatment or whatever because, <laughs> because it's 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 association between what and, and and another thing, association between a third thing and this drug and that drug and, and this uh, never proven uh, stenting process and whatever these kind of yeah. uh, interesting things. I just reading, reading. Okay, no, nothing interesting. Nothing interesting. The New England Journal of the New England Journal of Band Aid Medicine or something. Yeah, 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 something like that. So high quality yeah, in, association between unimportant uh, metrics. <laughs> yeah, and reading the papers, I think your point about the intros is very interesting because when you read a paper and it and it's claiming to be or it's presented as, let's say, you know, this paper really shows the pathophysiology of atherosclerosis, and in the intro there's statements like, you know, the LDL is in the you know enters the artery wall or you know with no mechanistic statement whatsoever it's just like this this thing happens yeah but it seems that uh, the ldl can indeed enter the arterial wall by uh, by uh, active uh, transcytosis or oh yeah i don't i don't doubt that but it, i would know, expect if, them if to put the word they should put the word transcytosis in there or they should I think, you know explain the mechanism by which these things happen instead i get the sense that a lot of people in that field don't they don't want to put the word transcytosis because as soon as you articulate that it's an active mechanism, all of a sudden a whole host of questions come up about the characteristics of that active mechanism and then therefore is concentration relevant to an active mechanism with feedback control. And I, th they seem to just absolutely avoid saying that word. Except yeah, well, that then, then the question arises almost automatically why there is an active mechanism to take up LDL into the exactly. arterial wall. And then you start uh, thinking about the different roles of uh, what uh, lipoproteins play. And then there is an anti-inflammatory, anti then there is a, the other immune uh, roles of uh, lipoproteins. They've, and They've thought of that one. They have, there's a paper that uh, LDL drives atherosclerosis by active transcytosis driven by SRB1 and the DOC receptor to cause atherosclerosis. Ah. Like the statement of the paper is like, this mechanism exists to cause atherosclerosis. Oh yeah, that's a, that's a nice mechanism. And it's <laughs> spe specifically developed by humans because other animals uh, don't seem to develop atherosclerosis whatsoever. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a specific trait of humans that we evolved the, the transcytosis system to, to develop. Yeah, it's a good idea. Uh, I did have one other mechanistic question about the, I guess, the mesenteric fat. So that's where the chylomicrons end up going through to be filtered, essentially. So are the contents of the chylomicrons essentially dumped into an adipocyte and then reabsorbed once they're filtered or something? Is there, do we know what the mechanism is there of how kind of the mesenteric fat acts to kind of filter the dietary input? I'm not aware of uh, such a mechanism. At the moment, uh, I'm into some uh, mechanistics of uh, chylomicron secretion itself mm -hmm. because it seems that uh, there are huge differences between uh, how much uh, lipopolysaccharide is uh, taken up with in, in chylomicrons, uh, depending on a lot of uh, stuff, and uh, our understanding is still pretty much lacking mm -hmm. in, in that respect. So I'm, I'm trying to find out if this this is again a very active process where right. you kind of sample uh, the the the, uh, the lumen uh, content but um, I, i'm not there yet so i i don't really know yeah because that gets kind of interesting like what looking at why a high fat diet would work if you're actually increasing the amount of chylomicrons you're um yeah if, if you have uh, if, how much is going through 
kind of if you have low low LPS producers, then I think uh, this this sampling uh, provides normal levels of uh, of LPS gotcha. for which for which your system is totally prepared. And and uh, you take it up, you can handle it. You get a clue what type of uh, LPS is there, what type of microbes uh, are there, and and uh, it's just uh, cleared up and, and there is there is no problem. The problem arises when uh, you have uh, enhanced. Uh, it starts with the the, the dysbiosis. You have uh, high LPS producers, a lot of debris. You have the high fat coming in, and you have the the enhanced uh, chylomicron secretion. So you have a triple whammy, and then uh, it, it overloads the system. That's my best uh, guess right yeah. now. Makes sense. The and threshold. Then, oh, sorry. Go for it, Nick. Yeah, I. I, I... I'm attracted to the threshold model from just a, a high level because, I mean, you can have multiple things that are affecting this threshold. It's inappropriate immune conditioning could be possible. You can have multiple different inputs, but it, it gives you like a common mechanism that you can look into and dig into and understand how these factors are, are pushing. Because it, it, it's clear that there's interesting characteristics about these chronic diseases in terms of some of them seem to show up earlier like we, we appear to have had some amount of arthritis and gout prior to heart disease becoming prevalent. And I'd like to be able to explain all those observations when, when we have a model like that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, I, I strongly suspect right now that uh, we need to dig into differences in immune systems or immune activations between different people in order to understand why similar uh, etiologies lead to different outcomes kind of. So if you have a very similar starting problems, why some people develop uh, these autoimmune diseases and, and others uh, go to the quicker diabetes uh, development or, or, or the switches between obesity and diabetes and, and the cardiovascular disease. So um, these, I think, uh, can be differences in the, the initiating events, maybe uh, the, the chylomicron transport of LPS and the transcellular uh, uptake of bacterial debris. So the true leaky gut, they, they convey different messages. Mm -hmm. And um, God knows how many differences there can be uh, in, the, in the initiating steps. And then uh, these differences from, from the beginning face the differences in, in the, the individual immune systems. Because those are, are highly individual, what, what you inherited, what you developed right. uh, as, a, as a small child, and then how it was altered later, and uh, epigenetics from, from two generations up, and, and, and many, many things influence your, your immune responses. Uh, you, you, probably know, you probably are aware of the uh, hypothesis. It was recently published in, I don't know, PNAS, the, the National Academies, uh, uh, journal by a lady, I don't remember her name, but uh, she posits that uh, uh, visceral and, and subcutaneous obesity might be, uh, might, should be viewed uh, through the glasses of, uh, of uh, costs of uh, immune systems, investing into immune systems or investing into storage systems. So if you, if you have a um, kind of a scoot, uh, um, you, you are scooted towards um, uh, heavier immune investments, which which made 
more sense throughout most of our evolution that you have a stronger immune system, then you are more prone to developing, uh, uh, more prone to develop uh, visceral obesity because that's the immune associated type of fat. And uh, uh, so um, th th this is very, very uh, compelling uh, type of uh, thinking, but um, yeah, that's, do, do we have find the evidence. It, it just seems like this this system, I, I don't know the state of the art in understanding epigenetic factors. Like, are we able to, to dig into that? Is that something that is, is accessible to us and comprehensible to us when we're trying to understand the activation of these systems or? Yeah, there is a, there is a big uh, thing in uh, epigenetics. Uh, I aband abandoned this a couple of years ago. I can dig, dig up the studies I have, but uh, it seems that it, it really goes through two generations. So if uh, your grandpa had a had a problem of uh, starvation or, or abundance or whatever, uh, you get this program um, with, with his uh, sperm. So it, it, it comes uh, around. And um, the, the other thing is the mitochondria coming from, from the mother. But yeah, it was uh, very recently found that uh, there are there can be some mitochondria uh passed on from from the fathers so it's uh the system is getting more and more complex as we are digging yeah unfortunately so it's it's uh less and less easy to to cut through it and find sim simplistic uh um, solutions yeah yeah but it'll be interesting if we can at least understand this system in terms of what it's doing and make those comparisons between people even if we can't delve into those details we could get some insight into what these differences are and why people react so differently. To yeah, I, st I started, started working with a group and uh, hopefully soon I receive a device to measure, to be able to measure my own insulin, CRP, C-peptide and these uh, kind of uh, molecules at home. Oh, and wow. uh, in the long, long-term plans, uh, there are some some other uh, molecules which, are, which is still a little bit plastic or it can be changed. Uh, it's before final decisions uh what what kind of molecules uh, should be should be measured at home uh, in the next wave for example uh, should it be lipopolysaccharide binding protein or which interleukins uh, there are some some nice ones uh, 22 and, and one beta and whatever uh, type of uh, interleukins and, and and what is possible technically on on these strips at all and um, yeah it, it's it's really exciting but uh, uh, sooner or later, you need to get the science right to be able to tell which which to measure. Mm -hmm. we, we, we're very interested in looking into that, particularly with the, the capacity to, to do experiments on carnivorous controls, so people who are not exposed to, or, or people who take a lot of steps to be healthier or have avoided these stimuli for a period of time. And we're looking into like exactly um, I guess those those sorts of hooks are their interleukins or like wh which particular LPS assay or things would be most interesting to measure to try and characterize that difference in between health and what that looks like in a postprandial sense or or stuff like that. Yeah, we have a setup. We can run ELISA assays in my apartment now. In theory, we haven't done one yet. We bought an insulin one, and we're looking into either the cytokine ones or. LPS yeah, ones or must, must be similar to the one uh, these guys uh, are about uh, to sell. They 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 have had a they have had a device on the market which basically a, a reader um, 
Uh, we've, nice. we've got basically nice a full chemistry lab one. We have like a microplate reader and a microplate oh. shaker, and we can run like 96 <laughs> well microplates. Now this um, this can be done from from uh, peripheral blood and oh, cool. uh, with the same same. Uh, uh, it's very similar to to glucose, but just it's uh, it's a kind of uh, immuno immunoassay. It's uh, huh. different. So uh, and the cost will be more moderate. I think uh, uh, basically you need the you will need a phone app and a phone camera to read uh, uh, the, okay. the, the the strip, and then uh, the analysis will be done in the cloud. And then uh, it comes with a full uh, um, visualization of uh, you, you get the AUCs and, 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 and everything. Have you been talking with Eric? Cool. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've been interested in it. Yeah. We connected at Breckenridge back in 2018. So it'd yeah, be interesting. They, they, they kind of uh, pulled, pulled me in. Uh, on that project, so uh, I, I didn't, of, I didn't uh, realize they have all the other. They have multiple different assays going at this point. I think uh, what they can do right now is uh, is uh, insulin, C peptide, CRP, and then the, they they uh, include a regular glucoketometer, which can also yeah. add total cholesterol and uh, and uh, lactic acid, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Cool. we we were interested in. Um, I don't know. I, I work at uh, Google, so they they had keep pinging me to try and reach out to people in Verily. They're the ones that aren't uh, still trying to like characterize LP little a or whatever it is things like that. So we'll see. Interesting. Yeah, Google Verily is doing a lot of uh, computational immunolog immunologics, as is Microsoft Research, which is kind of interesting. It I'm would wondering. be cool to try and get in there and steer them a little bit towards this stuff rather than. <laughs> Whatever other lipoprotein things they'll be doing for the next several decades, but yeah, these guys, Eric and, and company, I don't think that they want to do uh, any any lipoproteins. That's not not in the close plans, as far as I understand. So those will be more metabolism related, yeah, uh, peptide hormones and or um, LBP and these kind of things, and then maybe interleukins. Some of them, which we yeah, which that's we interesting. Uh, yeah, so it's it's not official yet, and I don't know my status with them so far. But uh, we we have been discussing a lot of things, and I even uh, give uh, some some uh, sales kind of related advices. I I I used to have some sales experience, so um, yeah. Yeah, we are trying to find it's a very very interesting uh, model because it's uh, it's part uh, philanthropy, it's part uh, trying to find funding from from insurers and these kind of uh, things, and then doing some pre-funding from from enthusiastic uh, customers who want to measure their their insulin, C-peptide, and whatever's. Yeah. So it's a big mix of everything, and and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's um, not easy to find uh, the right kind of business model because there is still no uh, no classic type of businesses there are no plans to have a classic type of business out of that as far as yeah. i understand so um yeah it's cutting through slowly interesting any other questions nick or should we wrap it up i think i don't know i mean a million questions <laughs> shoot it shoot them some of them at least I, yeah, I, do you have any interest, Gabor, potentially, in doing some kind of like regular, 
you know, chat to go over like the latest papers that you've gone, like a research paper reading group kind of thing or something? Yeah, it depends how much uh, time it takes. I, I still uh, try to spare my time for, for actual readings, whatever yep, I can. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, we discussed I have 490 something tabs open <laughs> on my iPad all the time and uh, fail to clear up a hundred or two so that I always run into this 500 limit. Is a 500 tab limit? Perhaps uh, I, I have a I have an Air 2, which is uh, from 2014 or whatever. So it's an old device. It's still okay. But, you got to buy uh, a new one to get the 700 tab limit. They'll charge you an extra hundred. <laughs> yeah, I, I, thousand, one thousand tab limit. But <laughs> I think first of all, I, I'd need this uh, export function so that I could export all the tab uh, names and and links at least, oh, and I can save and reopen if I wanted to. But uh, this was not a not a high high uh, on the agenda of Apple yeah. probably <laughs> to, to create this. Nobody has uh, 500 tabs open all the time, but that's too bad for all the papers. Yeah, uh, oh well. 99% <laughs> uh, it's, it's papers which, which, which are open. So yeah, but uh, it sounds interesting to discuss uh, some of some of the findings. Um, yeah, maybe we uh, can put like an hour on the calendar in like a month and you can send us some papers, we'll read them and then we could chat about them in the future and we'll see if we yeah, or, or, you can or not. Pick, you can pick uh, some uh, from my Twitter feed. Sure. Uh, yeah. These days, uh, I think um, I, I share most of the papers on, on the Twitter feed. I, I even spare the time of writing up a post uh, for some of my uh, thematic uh, pages uh, on Facebook. It used to be that my Facebook was linked to Twitter, so I shared on the page then i could share the page to to the groups and then mm -hmm. uh, but it's uh, I, I already find it too cumbersome it's i can spare a minute <laughs> i can spare <laughs> two minutes a day and then it's uh, it's a full paper a week a uh, full paper more a week yeah. so uh, it's uh, it's a never-ending story i see but oh yeah. yeah well it's awesome that you're always evolving your hypothesis and we very much enjoy following along on twitter and yeah, awesome maybe I should I should have a I should have a blog. I don't know. It's it's always the time I I want to spare not writing yeah. up all this stuff because uh, it takes a lot of time. If your if your uh, native language is not English, it takes right. even more time to write up a blog post and and uh, and then uh, what I'm always afraid of that uh, two months later my opinion changes and <laughs> I, I should go back and edit all the all the posts from from many years that. Oh, okay, guys. I found out that it it is actually not really, not really true. So uh, just have a little piece of software that marks all the papers more than a year or two old. Is uh, like, I may not believe this anymore. Just so you know, <laughs> I, read, read well, I, I I can basically mark all the papers that I don't want to believe everything. But uh, but uh, it doesn't really depend on on the age. Uh, yeah, as we discussed, uh, the the Apple processing study is still a great one. Yep. Uh, yeah. from, from it seems like a lot of the really, really good foundational research was done in the 60s and 70s. Where yeah, it, you, know, yeah you can find really great uh, things from, from the 60s and 70s. But uh, at the same time, uh, the, 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 um, the tools have devel developed so much uh, over these uh, decades that uh, what, what, what is possible now to look at is, uh, is, is incredible. Yeah, so it seems um, like a, a gift and a curse. We've got a, an information overload and a whole bunch of PhDs looking at little teeny tiny corners of teeny tiny cellular uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm I'd be really interested. So we haven't been able to dig up anyone doing pathology on uh, CVD or MI, especially with all these. Like the, the more you look into it, the more that it appears we don't know about MI in particular, understanding the possibility that the autonomic nervous system and the immune system is probably much more deeply intertwined with this than than we probably thought when the last pathologists were actually digging into this problem. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or... Uh, you mean uh, CVD pathology? Um, yeah, from I what think, I understand. Uh, we, we, we can be quite uh, confident up to the adipose uh, dysfunction level. So if you go only up to the adipose dysfunction and not uh, go go into what causes uh, adipose dysfunction, because then then uh, opinions will will uh, differ greatly. So most people will say that you overload your uh, adipose tissue, and that's the main problem. I don't know, but uh, downstream from from the adipose dysfunction, I think it's it's uh, it's rather straightforward by now. Mm-hmm. So uh, what happens is you you have uh, these uh, constant cytokine leaking or or, or uh, dumping uh, from from these uh, angry fat cells in especially in, in the, these different visceral depots like pericardial perivascular and and, uh, the, and the, the the abdominal visceral depots and uh, the, the, the causal factors uh, for those are, are rather clear I believe mm-hmm. uh, upstream of that that's that's a more interesting uh, and a much more open discussion what should cause adipose dysfunction and uh, this alteration towards visceral deposition mm-hmm. whether the personal fat threshold you know we even these days uh, things are being discovered like it's not the actual lipids within cells within a tissue but uh, there are actual adipocytes for example within the pancreas you have a kind of a pancreatic adipose tissue, uh, fat cells within the pancreas, or or <coughs> the same goes for for intramuscular. It's not the intra- intramuscular lipids, but uh, the intramuscular fat cells, can, what can do the damage. So that's why that there are some controversies uh, or paradoxes when when you have elite uh, uh, runners and they have uh, much higher intracellular uh, lipid levels than normal folks and they are metabolically very healthy and and the difference is that uh, their their lipids are stored in in muscle cells and not in fat cells within the muscle tissue so um i think uh, there, there there are still some really interesting things to discover ahead of us so that's why i'm looking at the, the incoming research always with a curiosity that uh, hoping for hoping to find something really interesting in today's or tomorrow's uh, news feed and if I find something I share on Twitter and uh, some people recognize if it's important other people find it's in it's in Chinese and ask what what does that mean <laughs> um, when you grab uh, the, the the really essence of, of a study which is the easiest to understand part from from that paper and then somebody comes around and asks, uh, what does that mean? And Twitter is not really the, the, the kind of media where you can uh, go into a, our lecture and tell the basics of uh, immunology or, or, or whatever. So that's, uh, that's yeah. crazy things. It's, it's probably impolite not to answer these questions, but I don't have the capacity anymore to, yeah. to just uh, tell. I, I don't want to deter them uh, from following me, but uh, so I 
don't just go and tell them that come on you should read it, read the stuff again because <laughs> probably he did but but he couldn't comprehend what it tells uh, but I, I don't have the time to to go and find uh, even easier language especially in english it's not yeah. not my mother tongue uh, to, well maybe with our our podcast we can try and give some background to some of this stuff that we can help people get up to speed on it um, if they want yeah. to take the time. I just, I just joke away. Yeah. I, I tell them that uh, I find it easier to to understand uh, the language in the papers than than uh, common basic uh, colloquial everyday English. So <laughs> if, if if they find it too difficult, I, I cannot help them because I I don't actually speak uh, colloquial English. So it's it's just the problem of the paper, the language of the paper, not mine. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was awesome chatting to you. Maybe we'll yeah, it was, do it again. It was very nice, very nice chat. Thanks, thanks for inviting. And yeah, if you have this uh, kind of uh, uh, idea to discuss uh, specific uh, papers, uh, not very frequently, but uh, one, one, two times a month, that 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 could be done. I think cool. that's always interesting to get uh, the the other uh, perspective. Yeah. From, from people because uh, otherwise you can uh, just get into your own uh, bubble and then exactly. your own uh, uh, what is it called what what chamber uh, echo chamber echo yep. chamber yeah yep yeah. you're the easiest person to fool <laughs> <laughs> yes you can always find uh, i i have some kind of a uh, gift perhaps i can think differently to to other people i don't know why but uh, that's uh, that's a gift one day or one day and that's uh, a curse on, on other days and and when you deal with more everyday stuff and you still think differently, that's not always a benefit. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, thank you very much, and we'll we'll let you go. Yeah. Have a nice day. And thanks. You too. You as well. Thank see you. See you on Twitter. Yep. We'll do. Bye. Bye bye.